All right, so that's the name of the book, and I'm going to go to the forward to the first edition, and we're going to talk about who the we are, just to get some foundational stuff squared away. So the forward to the first edition introduces us to the authors of the book, and it starts with a big capital we. How many of you have been told we're a we program? We might be a we program, but that's not the we they're talking about. We're probably a we fellowship, and then there's some of us in the we fellowship who have also thoroughly followed their path. But that's far more rare than the average person sitting in the fellowship. And so if you believe yourself to be an addict or an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, we may want to check in with these guys instead of some of the other sources we've checked. Does that make sense? We, I, I like you to understand, they record it in the book, I'm not going to get into it tonight, but they record in the book from 1939 to 1955, a span of 15 years or so, they recorded a 65% efficacy. And that included people who got sober, went to a world war, and returned from a world war. Now, those of you that are around behavioral health now, know what I know. We have stumbled significantly in spite of the advances in medical science and psychiatric tactics and all of these things. We have fallen somewhere less than 10. And we believe here at New Freedom it's because somewhere along the way the fellowships took the power out. So we would like to reintroduce everyone in this fellowship to power. Okay. So it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of the book. So the reason we do what we do is I have learned to read this book of experience. And although I don't know what the book says to you, I am an, ex an expert in my own experience. So I will share that experience with you as I discover how it aligns with theirs and see if we don't relate. Does that make sense? And we've been doing it for years and years and years. And people seem to, I mean, the people keep coming. And, and you know, whatever. I was told once upon a time that this is what I was supposed to do until I was told otherwise. And I got told by the one who has all power. So I show up. Right? All right. So, so for them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. So if we get you through these pages and if you do the things suggested and you have a similar experience, then no further authentication of their experience will be necessary because now you'll be squarely on their path. Does that make sense? Okay. So I want to jump from there over to the doctor's opinion, and I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to start right at the beginning of the chapter tonight. The doctor's opinion. It's on XXV, Roman numeral 25. Here's that big W, we again. Any of you following in your book? Notice how they made a big W? We. Who's we? The first 100. We call that to your attention. It's so important because if my experience doesn't align with theirs, what's that tell me? I must not have thoroughly followed their path. Doesn't mean I'm unique and everyone should follow me now. More ways than one. Well, of course, there's fucking thousands of ways. I tried 999. Okay. So we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So this is the authors talking to us about the doctor's opinion. And they're saying, drunks, us drunks, are interested in what the doctor has to say. How about you? Does that make sense? Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had the experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. 
So the doctor's opinion is based on treating these addicts, these alcoholics of the hopeless variety, and seeing their return to health and having no explanation, they started believing what the early AAs were telling them about this story. Yes? So a well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So this is the guy, Dr. Silkworth, you hear so much about. We're going to read his letter, and then we're going to see what the authors say about that, and then we'll jump into a little more of his text, and then we'll go see if we can have an experience. So it says, to whom it may concern, so that would be any one of us. Perhaps, I mean, since you're here. I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. So he's talking about Bill Wilson, and he's talking about some other chances Bill had or efforts Bill had at recovery that were not as successful as Bill would have liked. Did, have any of you come and then done out and done a little more research? Did any of you feel diminished because of that experience? So I always like to point out if you're feeling diminished, let's put that on the shelf because the author of the majority of this book was on his third try when the Dr. Silkworth got a hold of him. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. So he's writing this. Bill was in treatment in 1935. He saw him in his cups. By 1939, he's writing the foreword to this book. So he's had some time to see Bill doing well and he's seen this fellowship growing up as a result of what Bill's doing but I like to call your attention to as a part of his rehabilitation he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. When did we stop telling people that they must do likewise with still others? Because I've heard that nonsense in our fellowships, and I'm here to tell you, you must do likewise with still others. Who felt that? That's the power. That's happening in you. Okay. And it is that we're sharing this with others that has become the basis of the rapidly growing fellowship. Otherwise, we don't stick, do we? How many of you have come, go, this ain't for me, and didn't stick. Okay. All right. So I'm going to jump over to the next page. And I'm going to look at the, the alcoholics now talking about the doctor's letter and leading us into the doctor's expanded text. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So they put a dash there before they told us what it is we must believe. I must know that my drinking, my drug use is not entirely a question of willpower. Doesn't matter if your opinion, if you think that's nonsense. I better know it. Does it make sense? And I say this because people will say, well, you're only powerless after you take the first one. Nope, that's not true. That's why they call it the insanity of the first drink, because I was powerless before I took that son of a bitch. I chose to drink, really. Get up on the building, jump off, say I chose to hit the ground, see if it changes the outcome. might give you the warm and fuzzies because you felt empowered, but splat, it still happened. It depends. <laughs> Some of us bounce. But I used to jump out of buildings. Where's Kevin? <laughs> I used to jump out of buildings, didn't I, Kevin? No more than once a week, but... 
It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. Did it satisfy you to be told those things? How many of you did get told those things? How many of you would have to admit that there were certain times that they were probably somewhat accurate? Okay. So these things were true to some extent. In fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So I'm going to jump from this right now, but I'm going to talk about how many of you have come into the rooms and heard people tell the little silly jokes about doctors' opinion that this is a manifestation of an allergy. Any of you? I drink and I break out in handcuffs. <laughs> right? We've all heard it. Okay, but that's the one thing I must believe. I must understand that this manifestation, this allergy applies to me because that's the one symptom I have in common with every other addict of the hopeless variety. So how many of you are drinkers? Some percentage of you. When you drank, did you find that it, alcohol energized you? Yes! It's a sedative. That, that would be an abnormal reaction to a sedative. And if you're a medical person, you'd go, hmm, that's strange. That may be the manifestation of an allergy. Is it starting to make sense now? Where's my opiate addicts? So do we need to go down that road? Everybody, you're out, and everyone's like, oh, he's all strung out again. And then somebody gives you a little bump, you're out raking the yard. Where's my meth addicts? Okay, keep your clothes on. You've got to watch that crowd. Sean, they'll be naked in a minute. How many of you guys that are the meth addicts have noticed when you hit that shit, you slam it and nod out? Just like, like, like a real bummer for a heroin guy, right? Missed the whole buzz. <laughs> so those are all abnormal reactions to that stimulant or sedative, depending on... And some of us have abnormal reactions to numerous things. So I'm going to jump down to the, to the bottom of XXVII. And it says, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. So the manifestation that's really hard for us to get our head around, the fact that I'm energized by a sedative, looks to someone watching me like a craving beyond my mental control. Any of you experienced that? Like set limits for yourself, how much you were going to do, and then broke your own limits? How many of you really meant it when you set the limit? And then it goes on to say, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. How many of you hung out with people who seemingly drank or used like you, but they didn't have the catastrophic consequences you had? So we're watching it, and it looks the same, but it obviously doesn't feel the same. You know why I don't want their opinion? Because they go home and I go live under a bush. That's why I don't want their opinion. I need to know these guys. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the, craving of, the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. How many times have you done that? More than once? More than ten? More than a hundred? This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. So they're trying to dish it to us straight from the doctor's opinion based on his observations. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm going to jump over because I always like to tell this story from Bill's perspective because it just we, we hear a lot of stuff. A lot of us have been to a therapy session or two, and Bill just tells it 
like it is to be an addict of the hopeless variety, an alcoholic addict, right? I mean, an addict to alcohol and other things as you see the story come, come out. So I'm going to be on page five of Bill's story. And we're going to start right at the top of the page. Bill starts describing his experience as it's getting less fun. Any of you remember in your addiction when it started to get less fun? So for Bill, it was liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. How many of you had that going on, but you thought it was a secret? <laughs> we do that to ourselves, don't we? So he's describing what it is for him. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. How many of you, as your drinking progressed, if your drinkers started waking up with the shakes? How many of you cured the shakes with just a little bit more stuff? So he's going to describe that. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. Now think about that thinking and see if you relate to him. He's, he drinks until he's got tabs at every bar and delicatessen in New York, which is probably a few. And then... He makes some deal, stays sober long enough, or maybe at least moderately sober long enough to make a deal, and he runs around to pay all his debt so he can get on the hook again. And then he has to drink in the morning just to get anything on his stomach so he can stabilize, but I got this shit. <laughs> Better living, living through chemistry. Any of you relate? And there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Any of you take someone along with you on the journey or maybe multiple somebodies? And so we would figure out a way to not disappoint for a little while. Okay. So it says, gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. How many of you had kind of pissed it all away, things had gotten really bad, and then you finally got a break, but you didn't show up for the break because the celebration of the break... I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Any of you remember that? Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. How many of you promised somebody? If you loved me, you'd stop. I really do love you, and I really mean it, and I hope you're not easily disappointed. It's only a half joke, right? Because y'all, some of you felt that. That was supposed to go here, not, yeah. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? When they put a question mark in this book, the idea is to see if you ever had such a question. Go inward, introspective. Did you ever go get loaded after you knew it wasn't safe to do even one and then wonder, why did I do that? What was your response to it? Might as well get busy now, huh? Okay. I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? Did you ever think, you're think to yourself, am I completely nuts? How many of you wanted people to believe you were nuts? How many of you, where's my people that were homeless? We acted nuts to keep people the fuck away from us, right? <laughs> and then pretty soon it wasn't an act. Oh, apparently we hit a nerve. Huh? 
I began to wonder for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. How many of you have had that experience? Those are not words we use every day, but the experience of grace is confused with the illusion of control. And then all of a sudden that obsession's on me again and what I thought impossible certainly just happened, right? I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone in no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. Anyone relate? Any of you think maybe you'd like your sobriety date to be on a more convenient date? For, you know, I'm just going to drink for a week or two, and I'll just make mine, you know, June 1. And you just don't pick a decade, and it works out all right, right? <laughs> so it says, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. So come on, guys. I'm assuming I got people here with some history and addiction. You use some time after you knew it was not safe for you to use. Bring to consciousness the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next day. Come on, somebody do it. I'll know when you do. You, you Okay. You can feel it, can't you? It is unforgettable, isn't it? And if none of you have ever done that, if you just were one and done, how many of you have had one of these drunk dreams? Do you wake up with remorse, horror, hopelessness? You didn't even do it, but it seemed so real. But you're figuring out how you're going to lie, who you're going to lie to, what am I going to do? The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dare cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. The morning paper told me that the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Go with him on a hard thought. Every one of us had a hard thought. At some point in our active addiction, we figured out that if we didn't try again, we couldn't fail again. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, some of you really went there. Thanks for doing it, and sorry we did it. But that's the experience of powerlessness and unmanageability that we're talking about. Not a, not a concept. Okay. So, should I kill myself? Any of you? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So, two bottles and oblivion. Any of you relate to that? Feeling really morose, really bad? And then take a few drinks and we'll just kill it. We'll work on this tomorrow. So the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Any of you do that? Yep. Wife, husband, whoever. How many of you can relate to stealing from the slender purse? No earthly explanation other than you stole it. <laughs> and you would deny it to the end. I, I just can't imagine. Have you looked in the couch? <laughs> Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from the city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. And then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Any of you get to drink to delirium tremens? Any of you drink to meth psychosis? Whether you drank it or not is entirely irrelevant. Any of you know what I'm talking about? When, he, when he's talking about the madness on you? Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. The doctor came with a heavy sedative. 
Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. Any of you do that? Solved your alcohol problem with a little Valium. Oh, I didn't have a drinking problem. I had a Valium deficiency. Now with just a little gin, it's better. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. Any of you get there? How many of you started doing pain meds showing up in the ER? There we have it. Okay. People feared for my sanity, and so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though Certainly selfish and foolish, I'd been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So this is his third treatment that he's talking about. So this is treatment one. Okay, thank you, Sean. So he's talking to the doctor is now introducing him to the idea that he didn't drink the way he was because of his failed character. He drank the way he was because he was alcoholic. And those of you that come from some spiritual traditions, we, we don't sin because we're sinners, we sin because we were born into sin. So, so if you don't know that you're, you're worthy of a redemption, regardless of what spirit's got you, something about it, we just don't seek the, we don't seek the healer. Make sense? Some of, some of you are feeling what I'm telling you. Okay. So it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. How many of you could go out and do things, get a hustle on, get all things, get all hooked up, and, but could still tear it all down? Okay. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. So how many of you got a better understanding of yourself and fared forth in high hope? How many of you found that self-understanding lacked power? For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. And that's a, that's a common thing that happens to us that go to treatment over and over again because we work on the obsession. We don't ever talk about the allergy and we don't talk about my necessity for a redemption because I'm in the grip of this illness even when I'm not using. Um, but it was not for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. Any of you notice that when you went out on a run again the next time it didn't take near as long to go quite as far? I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium, delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. Now, he's going to tell you a little secret about self-honesty that most of us know, but we don't know everyone else knows. Are you with me? She would soon have to turn, give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew. How many of you can go there with him? Your opinion about my declining health has no weight but my absolute knowledge of my certain death, a lot of weight. Does it make sense what, what they're talking about? Okay. So I, I knew and I almost welcomed the idea. Yeah, don't tell me what's going to happen. Tell me when. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. So Bill's a war hero. He's, a, he's an analyst of stocks. He's raised lots of money for lots of people. He's done lots of really 
grand things in a grand way, and now he's getting ready to die on the streets a hopeless alcoholic. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. Any of you ever have that passing thing? I would sure like to be better father, better son, better parent, better whatever, employee. But that's over now. That's where he was at. So he says... I wanted to see if you're there so you can go with him because he's going to give us another experience. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Saturate now. No words. When you just know that you know that I have hurt everyone that ever cared and they think I don't care and that's why I hurt them and I care deeply and I have no earthly way to show it. I don't know how to explain to you the depths of my pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, they describe it. Make sense? Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I'd been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. So when he admits to powerlessness, he's, he's ceding the fact that he cannot overcome this spirit that has him. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. How many of you have been sobered by fear for a bit? Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. He's got an exclamation mark there. So he wants to emphasize to us, I really was as beat as I could be beat. I thought I'd been beat before, but this time I was really beat. And it was at that time frame that he starts to have a different experience. In reality, that was to be the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So what Bill refers to as a fourth dimension of existence is to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of of life that's better than I could have imagined. So he's promising at the end of my disease progression, this progressive illness that took me clear to the streets and to all the depraved states, there is a place on the other side of that, if I will receive it, of a progressive recovery where I'll know peace and happiness and usefulness. How many of you have had that experience here? See, that's a much better thing to raise your hand for than time and recovery. If you know happiness, peace, and usefulness, I don't give a shit how long you've been here. Good for you. Share it. Okay, so near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. Okay, where's my drinkers? Okay, you guys might not know this, but us drinkers are hiders. Any of you, any of you ever know a drinker that was a hider? Meth addicts are hiders, too. You guys are... <laughs> My wife was at work. I, I wondered whether I'd dare hide a, bottle, a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. How many of you got to where you're slipping in and out of delirium tremens and you had to hit a nudge so you could go back to sleep, maybe hold the vomit down a little longer? Yeah. So my my musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. Now, Bill writes he was sober in italics. So you got to get who this guy is. This old school friend is Ebby. And Ebby is the one guy that Bill knew, at least I'm not that bad yet. 
How many of you are real addicts, real alcoholics, hopeless variety type? You notice how we always had one that at least were not that bad yet? They get harder to find. Sometimes they die, we have to replace them. True. <laughs> So it was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. What condition? Sober. sober. Like the dude does not show up sober. Like Bill has any judge, you know, because Bill's not sober. But. So he says, I was amazed. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. That's how amazed Bill is. This guy's been committed. He must have busted loose and come to New York to see me. So he says, of course, he would have dinner and then I could drink openly with him. That's what he's thinking, right? Because nobody's really sober. How many of you remember that when you're new in recovery and these people are standing there polishing digits, you know, multiple decades and you're like, I ain't buying that shit for nothing. <laughs> Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So think of the images Bill's trying to conjure there. What is an oasis? Yeah, it, it might be a source of water in the middle of a very arid place. It also might be a mirage. And that's what he wants us to, to call our attention to. Because what have we naturally assumed, it's the water. But how many times did we drink the sand? Drinkers are like that. He does it, it's masterful with the wording, but if we don't take the time to, because some of you got a little God shot there. <laughs> okay, so, yes, you must be drinkers. I'm looking right at you, carry on. There ain't no hiding there. All right, so the door opened and he stood there fresh-skinned and glowing. I know I say this every time, it's the weird description. I'm not going to make fun, but I have to make a little fun. Something has to be really weird for you to describe your old drinking buddy as fresh-skinned and glowing. That makes me uncomfortable even bringing it up. So there's something going on, is the point. There's something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. He's so transfixed by Ebby's just the, the fact that he's there in his comportment, right? Presence, as Sean says. It, it, there's something different in this experience than I've encountered before. And he says, what had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed, but curious, I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. So how many of you have been disappointed, but curious? Push a drink across. No, I don't want it. Okay. Huh. Maybe. Maybe. He's probably going to sneak it. Come, what's all this about? I queried. So this is the thing you got to get. Here's drunk, drunk Bill, drunk and drinking. He famously thinks himself atheist sort of graduates to agnosticism along the way. But at this point in his life, he has run headlong into his encounter with this power we call God. And what has, was different about Ebby is he was full of presence. And so he talks about this, and when he asks the question, anyone who's spirit-filled, once we're asked the question, we are not, it's not a choice, we are obligated to give the answer. So what happened was, he looked straight at me, simply but smilingly, smilingly, he said, I've got religion. Now, you're going to get honest with yourself here. If you're sitting there drunk and drinking, and you're hoping cat's coming by so we can twist off, 
and something's a little different with him. And you ask, what's different? And he says, I've got religion. Regardless of your views, the fun meter goes, this is going to suck, right? This is going to be a sermon from hell. So we all can relate, right? He says, I was a gas, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. So have you ever had that idea of somebody who came to help and you assumed you knew that what they were offering for help? And, and, and many times you were right, right? But remember, he was inexplicably different in appearance and comportment. And look at what happens. But he did no ranting. Hmm, that was almost disturbing. Did you feel it? In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. Ebby showed Bill the power of testimony, and he gave credit to this power he calls God of these two men he did not know who came to his commitment hearing, took responsibility for them, good Samaritans you might call them if you were working at another book. And they told him of a simple religious idea, God dwells in you. And a practical program of action that will prove that fact to you through you. See why we need to talk to people about a power, a power and then a manner of living that reveals that power to us and through us? Because we cheat them to talk to them about the power we call God without giving a demonstration, and it is a tangible demonstration. I feel many of you in this room feeling your spirit move tonight. That's happening in you. That's a fact. So he's sober. He can't be sober. So... Bill's concluding it worked. Does it make sense? So he had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. Notice what Bill said he did. What experience? Of awakening to his spirit. He came to pass along to him a simple religious idea. Bill, God dwells in you. And if you'll do what they showed me, you'll know too. And you'll do likewise with still others. And if you read that other book, Signs and Wonders Follow Us for years now. Does that make sense? Okay. So certainly I was interested. I was, I, if I cared to have it, I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested for I, I had to be for I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings. His insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died these recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. So Ebby had just declared to Bill in his drunken state that he had been redeemed by this power and he was now there to pass that experience on to him. Bill instantly started getting revelations of his youth and how he had scoffed at God, scoffed at religious people, but he knew this grandfather who although he scoffed at the doings, the comings and goings of the religious people, he had no doubt that there was this underlying rhythm. He was, he was basically on his deathbed defiant. I will not tell you how to worship my God. I will not listen to you tell me how to worship my God. And then he says that they made me swallow hard. How many of you have just been talking, telling a story, and your spirit moved, and all of a sudden you were filled with emotion? 
Would you describe that as making you swallow hard? See how Billy, Bill is talking to us about a tangible sensory experience he had where he went from atheism to agnosticism and he came to believe as he walked this program out. Does that make sense? So he said that wartime day in the old Winchester Cathedral came back again. So he is getting ready to go to war. He stopped in the churchyard in England on his way overseas and he's looking at a gravestone and it's an old soldier who had survived war and then drank himself to death. And so now Bill's in New York and he's an old soldier who survived war and now he's drinking himself to death. So he starts to talk about the significance of that revelation. God was with me then. God's with me now. Okay. So I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are for that means the blind faith and strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomies, even the evolutionists suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much precise and immutable law and no intelligence? So he's asking himself these questions. He's getting introspective about what he's having. He's having an experience. He's told this is an experience of the spirit. And now he's questioning his own beliefs. See, eyesight without insight is spiritual blindness. At some point, you'll have to question your own limiting beliefs in order to get well. Does that make sense? So he says, I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. With the ministers and the world's religions, I parted right there. They talked of a God per when they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. How many of you can relate to him? Especially in light of the lives some of us have led, yes? But what does Bill come to believe? When we speak of God, we speak of power. Not a spirit of fear, but of power. Yeah? Sound mind. I'm going to jump from there to the middle of that page 11. He says, but my friend sat before me and he made the point blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. And he knew that to be true because he knew Ebby's condition. Does that make sense? Someday in our fellowships you'll meet that person who you know knows the depths that you know and yet has somehow been restored and you'll ask. My guess is most of you already have because you're here. Um, his human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he'd admitted complete defeat. Then he, had, then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he'd ever known. So that is Bill's description of being recovered. So you know there's been an argument in fellowships for years or recovered or recovering and all. They say recovered many times in this book. They mean what they say. They say what they mean. Alcoholism was not a diagnosis medically at the time for one thing. So they weren't talking about a medical diagnosis. They're talking about a mining term, right? Uh, to take from what was thought waste and extract something infinitely valuable. He says from taken from a scrap heap and raised to a level of life better than the best he'd ever known. That is what it is to be recovered. And all of us, for all of us, circumstantially, that means something different. But what I had thought was a wasted life has been put to purpose in this day. Does that make sense? That means I'm recovered. Does that make sense? Because I've been redeemed. Okay. All right. So, I'm doing something crazy again. Okay. Had this power originated in him? He's asking the question. Obviously, it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. So, you get why we admit to powerlessness, but not subject to my drinking. I'm powerless to live without God's... Does that make sense? 
So I don't know that in step one, but I'm learning that because I had a power within me that wanted me dead for sure all those years in addiction, and yet I still did not. Um, that floored me. It began to look as though the religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. So he knew Bill's or Ebby's condition. Ebby told what had happened, the redemption he'd experienced. But he didn't just tell the story. He knew the story because there it was right in front of him. Right? I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasp a new soil. Despite the living example of my friend, there were, remained in me vestiges of my old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I'm going to jump from there to Bill's or Ebby's suggestion. My friend suggested when what then seemed a novel idea, why don't you choose your own conception of God? So I want to point out to you that he offered that to him to demonstrate that God meets you where you are. That was not the same as saying a God of my understanding. It's always a God as he understood him. He took an experience to him, not a concept. That's how I know. So we're going to meet you where you are. Whatever your belief, Bill, obviously you're doing better than you were a minute ago. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. Start where you are, but don't stay stuck. If you've got limiting beliefs that have limited you all your life, then I would suggest to you Question your own thoughts. And sometimes that takes a power greater than ourselves. Okay, so. It says, thus I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. At long last, I saw the miracle of Ebby sitting in front of him. I saw, I felt the revelation of all this stuff from childhood. And then I believed. And this is why I told you at the beginning we would teach you to talk to you about the power we call God without giving you a demonstration. We expect you to see the miracle, we expect you to feel the miracle, and then we expect you to know that you are the miracle. That's it. Next week we'll look at two. Good, man. Yes, sir. It could be better, actually. Good. That's good to hear.